0: Hey, I'm Holly from Massachusetts. I'm
1: James from Salt Lake City.
0: I'm Jason R. Wallace
2: from America's Georgia in these United States. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate.
0: I'm Jesse Thorne. James Brown wasn't just the godfather of soul, and he wasn't just the minister of the new new super heavy funk. He was also the hardest working man in show business and a man with a few surprising friends.
1: I think why he connected with Nixon, and and, and at times with the Republican Party most of all, is because he, he was an individualist. He, he tied in with that bootstrap mentality of doing for yourself. You can't trust anybody else, and I can succeed on my own was his philosophy. It's bullseye. This week,
0: biographer R.J. Smith profiles Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, from a country wild boy with burlap underwear to soul brother number one. And then comedian Cameron Esposito reveals her rugged childhood wardrobe.
3: How many days a week should a suburban girl wear a coonskin cap? I went with seven, seven days a week.
0: And I'll tell you why you should go where everyone knows your name. All that and more this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by one of our favorite culture critics to recommend some stuff for you to spend your time on. Uh, this week we're doing some all timers with Mark Frauenfelder from BoingBoing.net. Hey, hey, Mark, how you doing? Great. How's it going, Jesse? Who am I kidding? It's going great. I'm talking to Mark (laughs) Frauenfelder. Let's start with this iOS game called The Sword of Fargo.
2: This is one of my favorite iOS games, and it's one that I have played a bunch of times. It's based on a game that was written for the Commodore 64 computer in 1983. (laughs) But it's basically a dungeon crawler game where you go through this kind of a mazy dungeon and attack monsters, pick up better weapons and armor and open chests, and fight different monsters. And as you descend deeper and deeper into the dungeon, the monsters become more fearsome. The graphics are great. I love the graphics in it. I love the gameplay. It's got that kind of intermittent reinforcement thing that makes you want to play over and over again. The music is terrific. It's by this guy named Daniel Pemberton. Who I actually met in 1993 when I was working at Wired. He was 15 years old, and he came over from England to uh, interview me about a, a book I wrote at the time, and he gave me a cassette tape of his music, and it was fantastic for this 15-year-old kid. And he, his career has really taken off. He's a, a uh, composer for movies and television in England now, and the music and sound effects are incredible on this game.
0: Let's change gears completely and talk about this book, The Emperor of Scent by Chandler Burr. Um, This is a book that is about the history and uh, practice of the fragrance and perfume industry.
2: Um, How did you even come to read this book, Mark? Um, Yeah. uh, uh, A a woman who's an editor at Make Magazine told me about it in 1996. She said, oh, this, this book, Emperor of Scent, is amazing. You'll love it. And I I really like and respect her opinion about everything. Her name's Arwen O'Reilly. And so I, I got the book and I started reading it. And it you know how some books give you like a new set of eyes and make you see the world in a different way. This book gave me a new nose and made me very interested in the way that things in the world smell. And so it's not only a history of engineering scents uh, and perfumes, but it's also a profile of this guy named Luca Turin who has been pushing this theory that smell, that odor is based on the vibration of molecules rather than a kind of lock and key uh, a model that most people, uh, most uh, smell scientists, I don't know what the word is now, I don't remember, but most most smell scientists think that it's the shape of the molecule that attaches to a corresponding receptor and that's what makes it smell but he says no it's the vibration and he's shown some kind of compelling examples of why that might be true but the the scientific community has really fought back against it and it was really hard for him to get his work published in a peer-reviewed journal and the story was about that and it's a really interesting story and then you know the ch- chapters alternate with uh the author chandler burr going to these bazaars in the uh Middle East to pick up these really exotic kinds of scents, uh, like there's this stuff called OUD, O-U-D, that's uh, wood that has been uh, eaten by a certain kind of worm, and it's an, an incredible incense. I I ended up buying some because I had to experience the smell of this stuff myself. It's a fantastic book, and I, I love the fact that I knew nothing about scent when I when I read it, and I left feeling the, uh, a, a completely newfound appreciation for my sense of smell a couple of all-time picks from mark frauenfelder chandler burr's
0: book the emperor of scent and the ios game the sword of fargo you can of course find mark online at boingboing.net thanks mark you bet jesse It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Ford. He was known by many names, Mr. Dynamite. The amazing Mr. Please Please Himself, Soul Brother No. 1, the hardest-working man in show business, the minister of the new, new super-heavy funk, and most of all, as the GFOS, the godfather of soul. James Brown went from a Georgia jailhouse to the top of the charts, and in his four decades of recording and performing dominance, he left a legacy that's unmatched in American popular music. My guest, R.J. Smith, is the author of the first major biography of Brown, which traces his life from a literal whorehouse to being the king of soul and creator of funk. The book is called The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. Welcome to the show, R.J. It's great to have you on the show.
1: Hey, it's really great to be here.
0: Any excuse to talk about the GFOS <laughs> is good what good. I have to say about that. Mm. I I particularly enjoyed uh, the part of the book at the uh, the concerts around the rumble in the jungle in Zaire. Where he wears that GFOS jumpsuit—that's
1: <laughs> a great era because yeah, he he had the jumpsuit and he has this kind of strapping cummerbund thing. Uh, <laughs> he he was getting a little little bit soft around the middle, uh, you know. He's middle aged there.
0: This is like seventy six or something like yeah, that, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: So the the cummerbund is like a foot tall. I went to an estate. Uh, well, there was an estate auction and also a collection of stuff from the estate uh, in, a, in a museum in South Carolina. And they had a room. It was one of his wardrobe rooms, I assume, or all the stuff in it. And they had, you know, a dozen of those cummerbunds in different colors, all GFOS. It, I, I saw in that room uh, a, a knee pad. You know, an ace bandage on his knee that I assume he used every night when he hit the floor and did please, please, please. I had to really hold myself back from not putting that stuff on. <laughs>
0: well i couldn 't be a bigger fan of james brown i'm i 'm excited to get the chance to talk about him um let 's start with his roots because you spend a lot of time in the book not just talking about James Brown and his childhood but talking about where he 's from
1: well for starters, well, he was born in the piney backwoods part of uh central western South carolina, really a rural really nineteenth century sort of uh area. And, um, you know, he when he died, he lived maybe an hour's drive from there. So I felt that to talk about him, I had to talk about that region. And everybody that comes from, from that part of the state has this amazing uh, affiliation with it. It's one big reason why I think James Brown could be friends late in his life with Senator Strom Thurmond, uh, an arch conservative uh segregationist, not somebody you would think would be on the next square in the Hollywood Squares with James Brown,
0: if he was on Hollywood Squares, <laughs> it would probably read Celebrity Racists from <laughs> Thurmond,
1: yeah, yeah, but they they were Southerners and they came from the same neighborhood, basically not you know within a few a short drive and that matters. That really matters there, and they knew how to talk to each other. They had folks who knew folks, and that was it.
0: Tell me a little bit about the circumstances of James Brown's childhood. Mm. He was, he was not a rich
1: boy. He, he, no, uh, you know his his dad worked in the. He took turpentine out of the pine trees uh, when they were living in South Carolina, and collected it in buckets and lived in a in in what you know turpentine camps. So he wasn't around a lot when James was you know two, three, four. Uh, Mom was around somewhere. James always claimed he was abandoned by her. But actually, what I found out was that uh, she was around somewhat. I think James's dad was an incredibly violent person, as James would become. And um, I think he kind of scared her away. But James blamed her for leaving. Um, So parents weren't around a lot. He's living in a shack sometimes with aunts or cousins sometimes he was taking care of himself as a 4-year-old uh playing with what he called his friends that lived under the shack uh doodlebugs uh insects were his buddies then and uh yeah he, he you know he would eat greens he found in the field uh whatever dad happened to bring home when he came home that night or that weekend uh it was uh, not an easy existence and it didn't get much better when he walked to Augusta Georgia as a as a 9-year-old with his dad uh, living in his in his aunt's whorehouse uh, taking care of himself and in some ways that's when he walked into the 20th century when he walked into Augusta in the 1940s so where did music enter his life? ah Lewis Jordan performed there
2: Can I you.
1: this was like one of the uh, top tiers of the so called Chitlin circuit so Brown would go to those shows they had a talent night once a week and, and his group uh, the Cremona Trio won uh, when he was a uh, you know uh, barely into his teens. Uh, they did I think a Lewis Jordan song, some gospel songs they won a talent night and uh, Brown was hearing music at the same time that he was performing it so tell
0: me about um, how a young James Brown ended up uh, ended up in Jail, or in in a sort of as you describe in the book, jail was sort of a different thing back than what we might imagine. But how did that how did that happen?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this today uh, that that whole jail time for him, and he said something really interesting to a a close friend a little later in his life that I always am going to wonder about. He said the police wanted him for other stuff. More serious stuff that he may or may not have done. And there's always been this uh, rumor that Brown committed worse crimes than the breaking into cars that he ended up going to prison for. Uh, but the, So he said that the police were out to get him for something he may or may not have done. They caught him breaking into cars, stealing uh, soldiers and and working men's clothes. He needed something to wear it was literally and this was a guy who would go to to grade school wearing uh uh this burlap flower sack underwear well i mean he
0: was you know living in a living in a whorehouse and you know stealing clothes to wear is about as close to a wild boy as you could possibly be and still be living in a 20th century American city. Mm. Um, And just being somewhere where even if the food was gruel, you could expect food. That's right. Is a huge difference.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a, a... Expectation is exactly right. He had, he knew he was going to get sleep that night. He knew that he was going to get fed the next morning. He had a radio. Uh, they called him Music Box in prison. He, he formed a gospel group in prison. I don't get the impression
0: that he was driven to form a gospel group because of his faith mm. as much as because that was the type of group that you formed if you wanted <laughs> to get singing gigs.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, he— he went to a lot of different churches as as a boy, as a teenager, and, and as an adult. And he got, quote-unquote, got religion in a more formal, uh, affiliated way later on in his life. But uh, he went to a lot of different churches, and he, he often said, or at least once said, that he, he studied these preachers. He, even as a kid, was studying how Artists or speakers or performers connected with audiences. And he went there almost as uh, more than a devout person. I, I think he went there as, um, as a student, a student of communication and uh, rhetoric and uh, connecting. And he, he learned a lot that way.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer R.J. Smith. He's written a biography of the minister of the new, new super heavy funk, James Brown. It covers his roots in Georgia and his path to becoming a pop culture icon. The One, The Life and Music of James Brown, is now available in paperback. I think one of the most interesting things about what was happening in pop music at that time, especially black pop music, was that it, all of a sudden it became, it, it became possible to make uh, secular popular music for young people, As a career. I mean, I think that's the great revolution of rock and roll is, you know, uh, fancy pop singers were singing to older people, grownups, people with money and, you know, gospel singers were singing gospel music. Um, And, you know, just like with Sam Cooke or whoever else, you realize, oh, wait, you can actually pack a show full of teenagers. Yeah and sell records to 20 year olds <laughs> that's very different from from what
1: uh from what a you know Perry Como can do yeah well that, that that's a good point i mean in the in the 50s when he was breaking through on the so-called chitlin circuit you know those were working class tough Tough, grown-up African-American audiences—they told you when they liked something. They let you know with uh, with their words, with things they threw or didn't throw, uh, if they didn't like things, if you suddenly didn't do a song they expected, you know, their fists might fly. It was a really grown-up scene that he was singing rhythm and blues to. And a few years later, after things like Live at the Apollo and the Tammy show, when America can see him, he's doing those same songs to teenage audiences, white and black. And it's a whole different vibe, but he's the same performer.
0: What were the first records that he recorded?
1: Now, please, 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 1956. There's always been a legend of, of an earlier recording, but that's that's certainly the first one. Please, 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 please. please, please. please, please. And uh, that was a big hit for him. If he hadn't had a hit right off off the top, he might not have had a follow up or a career. Please. It's kind of like a set piece or a found object or something. It was this structure that a lot of songs had and that triplet piano, triplet thing that kind of is the whole rhythm for the song and the vocal style, you know, it's the street corner vocal harmony style of a million and one records and it goes back to gospel quartets and stuff. Please, please, please. places that had never gone before. He performed it night after night in these clubs and worked up an amazing, you know, it could be a 20 minute routine and crawling around on his hands and knees. He'd get off the stage and crawl through the audiences. He'd find a pretty girl and he'd beg her, please, please, please come back, baby. He just pushed, he pushed and pushed and pushed with that song. He's hes this live animated object and he, it's, he's
2: burning.
0: After a break, more with R.J. Smith on James Brown and what Mr. Dynamite took from his predecessors.
1: He always presented himself as, quote-unquote, a man's man. But he got his hair from Little Richard. He got a great song from Billy Wright. He, he took influence and notice of everybody.
0: It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Jesse Thorne here, proprietor of MaximumFun.org. Look, we had a great time in the Poconos and everything, but there's no way we are forgetting about our annual trip to Lake Arrowhead here in Southern California. So, unless the world ends first by Mayan prophecy, MaxFunCon West will be held May 31st through June 2nd, 2013. Join us for a showcase of elite stand-up comedy performers in the woods, plus informative classes and talks from some of the best creative minds in the nation. If you've been to Max Funcon before, get ready to reunite with your old friends. And if you're a first-timer, get ready to make a whole ton of new ones. Registration is now open at MaxFunCon.com. So act fast. Max Funcon pretty much always sells out. And we don't expect this year to be any different. Remember, go to MaxFunCon.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, R.J. Smith, is the author of a biography of James Brown, the musician and band leader, the godfather of soul, who helped shape the face of modern popular music. I want to circle back to one of his influences that you write really extensively about in the book, and really fascinatingly, and that's Little Richard. Mm. Little Richard followed in Louis Jordan's footsteps as the king of screaming in Mm. popular music. Yeah.
1: Little Richard, when he was not a star, came to this town, Toccoa, Georgia, which is where Brown had lived when he got out of prison, a small town up in the mountains, northern Georgia. Little Richard was playing there. Brown and, and the Flames asked if they could come on stage and play with him, and he knew better than to turn his stage over to anybody. But he did say, when I take a break, you guys can come on and play for a few minutes then. And he liked what he heard. He gave them the number of his manager, Clint Brantley, in Macon, Georgia, big town, and in a, in a few months, they were all living in Macon, Georgia with the same manager. He definitely was somebody that Brown was studying very closely. They went, you know, he, he, he got his hair very clearly from people like Little Richard and Little Richard. And this whole amazing tradition in the South uh, that uh, it's been called the Tent Show Queen tradition. Um, a singer named Billy Wright in Atlanta. Hey, hey.
3: About
1: Tell me the a gay man, he had his hair up that way before Little Richard did. And other figures, Escarita, an amazing piano player, taught Little Richard some things uh, and had a high, uh, gospel whoop that uh, Little Richard inherited. All these people are, are in, the, in the clubs and doing the same sort of things and, and there's an influence there on, surprisingly, maybe, maybe not so surprisingly, on James Brown, you know, who, well, he's not a tent show queen. He he always presented himself as, quote, unquote, a man's man. But he got his hair from Little Richard. He got a great song from Billy Wright. He, he took influence and notice of everybody.
0: There was a great turning point in James Brown's career that um, you write about wonderfully in the book. And that is he had been putting out this series of follow-up records to Please Please and had not, you know, he'd had minor hits but was not smashing with anything um, until he recorded an LP uh, that he had to really fight for, which was his first Live at the Apollo recording.
1: It is like being in church. Some, sometimes in that record, when he is going back and forth with a, a, a totally intimate relationship with the audience, people shouting out, he's hearing that and feeding off that energy... Shouting back at them, going back and forth, it—it's it, so much richer and more. It's something different than a record. It's being in a place that—that uh, uh, is not like a living room or a jukebox or something. I wanna hear you
2: scream. I wanna hear you say ow. I wanna hear you say ow. Don't just say ow. Say ow. And I believe my work will be done.
0: Ow!
1: Ow! I love You can hear his control over people. He, he lived this dangerous life, and he had so little control as a kid. And I think being alive on the stage and, and having this amazing, magical power over people in the audience kept him kept him alive in a way, and you can hear it on on the live at the Apollo record
0: It's around this time that he is really starting to develop this sort of in in two thousand twelve terms nutty business model mm. <laughs> in his relationship <laughs> with his record label and his touring um which which involved i mean it involved among other things just carrying around boxes full
2: of money. <laughs>
0: Yeah, (laughs) but also also involved a sort of it's funny because to say that it's a feudal relationship with his record label makes it sound like uh, the record label was controlling him. But he what's remarkable about it is that he has essentially through sheer force of will and intelligence and I guess you would say street smarts twisted around that. Into something where he is somehow in charge
1: yeah that's right that's that's exactly right. He was a fighter, and Sid Nathan was a fighter, and why they worked so well together, I think was because they they had this awful marriage where they shouted and all but came to fisticuffs they never did but but they they shouted and they kind of respected each other and and stubbornness. Brown respected stubbornness, and he rose to the occasion and became more stubborn. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, the relationship with Nathan was like – he constantly – Brown wasn't getting paid a lot. The way that he made most of his money was from those shows, not the hits. He would take – Shoe boxes and cardboard boxes of money, and have different guys carry it. He had rolls of bills in the toes of his boots, and um, but he was he was always needing money. And so one thing that would happen was Nathan would say, "Well, I'll tell you what, I'll loan you five thousand dollars, but you got to sign another contract for the next two years." So he was constantly on the hook for more time, uh, just because he was always uh, in, in need of more money from the guy. So in that way, uh, yeah, he looks like a supplicant. But he knew clearly he he was the hitmaker, especially as the '60s went on.
0: This is also when he's starting to develop what you might call his unique management style. <laughs> um, he had been he had been trod upon a little bit in, at the very beginning of his music career, and within five or ten years in the business, he was very sure what
1: he wanted in his organization on all levels. Uh, With band members, with uh, managers and business associates, with girlfriends, he never wanted to be dependent on people. It's one reason among many that he had, you know, two, four, five drummers in the band at one time. Drummers were important, but he didn't want to be beholden to just one drummer. That was giving somebody too much power. So he always doubled up on everything, uh, accountants and uh, uh, spiritual, you know, the Al Sharpton types. He always had a couple of uh, political advisors. Um, he always had a couple of drummers. He So, so that he freed his hands and he always kind of played people off against each other.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, R.J. Smith, is the author of The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. It's available now in paperback. So funk... Is this revolution that is often attributed to James Brown? Um, There's a lot of disagreement about what the first (laughs) funk record is, and you write a little bit about that disagreement in the book. Um, I think there is uh, there's relatively broad agreement that the first funk hit, the first smash hit record of funk, is "Papa's Got a Brand New Bag." The world changed around James Brown as James Brown was changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the world of the late 1950s when he entered the scene and the world of the mid 1960s when he, uh, around when he invented funk, were very,
1: very different. His initial relationship was as an observer in a way, uh, the segregated system especially in the South where he made so much of his money live, um, he didn't select it. It it, it was forced upon him. And artists like him learned how to make it work as well as it could work for them. They played either segregated shows or strictly to black audiences. Uh, And when suddenly uh, audiences were integrating and artists were expected to have a, a point of view on integration, it became complicated for somebody like James Brown who wanted that circuit of black businessmen and record stores and, and radio stations that catered only to that audience that he thrived on and used to advance his, his, his career and have hits with, suddenly it was dissolving uh, as integration was, was slowly happening. But as well, people are expecting pop stars like Brown to have uh, opinions. Brown came after the fact to that and And yet he seized on it to become a bigger star and to actually say things to people that mattered and that helped uh, speak to the civil rights era
0: something that 's interesting to me about James Brown in the social context of this period is that he seems like he is always driven by a desire to be the thing that he is and be successful at it. And in uh, that worked great in an era when um, he was operating in an exclusively African-American business and cultural environment. Um, it did not necessarily make sense in the context of a sort of, I don't know what to say, I, I don't mean this pejoratively, but a sort of Sydney Poitier type environment where, Um, Everyone is coming together. But as things continued to progress socially, he became that same quality about him made him this powerful symbol of what it was to be black.
1: Mm. If if I hear what you're saying the right way, yeah, I mean, he, he was a fighter. I mean, he was obviously a boxer, and everything he got, he had to fight for. And every time he got more... It just confirmed in himself this idea that fighting was the right way to do things. So he performed as a fighter, which is why the rumble in the jungle, where he is almost equal billing with Muhammad Ali, is so uh, powerful and meaningful. It, with these these two great global fighters, uh, who had a political dimension and a creative dimension and a fistic dimension, all in one place. Hey, man.
0: He didn't necessarily identify himself with the things that people were identifying him with, especially politically um, in the late 60s.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's the other part of uh, saying no, that could be a problem for James Brown. Um, he, I think like a lot of us, uh, he didn't have a straight and narrow uh Politics. It, it, he had warring ideas that didn't all line up neatly. He was he believed in civil rights. He clearly didn't believe in nonviolence. Uh, <laughs> you know he he, he didn't he, he didn't agree with Dr. King's tactics, but he admired and, and I think loved Dr. King ultimately. Um, you know he was critical of the Black Panthers and didn't and didn't didn't truck with that. He he thought separatism was going to be a big problem, but. But yeah, and then in the late 60s and in, in the 1972, uh, he sides very verbally and photographically with Richard Nixon, and it became a huge problem for him with his audience, uh, white and black. Um, it became – and when people said, James, you're making a big mistake, this is a conservative or this is no friend of the black man or this is someone who, who, who doesn't line up in people's minds with say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud – When Brown heard that, he went out there and endorsed him again, (laughs) you know, because that's that was the fighter in him. And the uh, you tell me no, and I'll say it twice. Uh, And it really came to blow up in his face.
0: And also, James Brown was not afraid to, you know, have a meeting with Richard Nixon because he wanted something out of it (laughs) when he was in tax when he was in tax trouble for running an entire business based on. Uh, boxes full of money,
1: <laughs> yeah, well, he was hoping to get some things I think, from the Nixon administration uh, honorable and and business moves and stuff, but on the deepest level, I think why he connected with nixon and and, and at times with the Republican Party, most of all is because he sided with that uh thread in 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 conservative or republican politics or southern politics or whatever we want to call it um and they're all different things but with that strain that that has a mistrust for social programs uh that 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 he he was an individualist he, he tied in with that bootstrap mentality of doing it for yourself you can't trust anybody else so yeah if I I don't want a handout. Just get out of my way and level the playing field and I can do I can succeed on my own was his philosophy. And we can argue and I don't think Nixon really did that, but he spoke that language. He 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 used those symbols uh to attract people like James Brown very successfully.
0: It's Bullseye from maximumfun.org and PRI, Public Radio International.
2: Hello fake radio listeners. I didn't see you over there. This is Judge John Hodgman relaxing in his chambers. You know,
0: I've
1: resolved the greatest moral conflicts of our time, like the potluck problem, snob versus slob, and of course the toot dispute. Do you have a pressing issue that needs swift, decisive
0: justice? Visit us at www.maximumfund.org slash jjho. That's J-J-H-O for Judge John Hodgman. And hear the results of each case on my weekly podcast Judge John Hodgman. You can subscribe in iTunes or find it online at MaximumFun.org. This is the sound of a gavel. That is all. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, R.J. Smith, is the author of a biography of the hugely influential musician James Brown. The book explores Brown's multifaceted life from music to politics. It's called The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. By the mid-1970s, the dominant dance sound in the United States stopped being the kind of noisy funk sound and started being something that was much more refined, not a representation of a live performance, and eventually became disco. Yeah, and that was a really tough time for James Brown who had never i mean the train had had never decelerated
1: before yeah that's right and the sad thing well there's a lot of sad things about that period from endorsing nixon and its after effect on you know but one sad thing is that when he made james brown records when he made funk records um they were really good records or or pretty good records um, you know, but it was when he tried to make disco records and couldn't or his heart wasn't into it or he, 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 you know, that's when he started to really sound less than we want James Brown to sound like.
0: What's that nickname that he had? The original Disco Godfather, the original Disco <laughs> Man. Which <laughs> yeah. one is
1: it? The original Disco Man. Yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, I mean, and, and his, it's it, true and ex- sort of. That's it. That that That's his point was that, you know, this came from me and, and a chunk of it really did, you know. Disco was different. Disco was uh, much more steady on the 4-4. It was younger stars. It was more feminine and more gay than James Brown's audience uh, identified with. Um,
0: There was a significant portion of influence that was from people named Giorgio, (laughs) not people named Jabbo.
1: (laughs) That's it. That's it. Yeah. He, he did not know what to do. I mean, he, he, he was, you know, he was the road runner going over the cliff uh, and running, 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 running was always the default setting, right? That's what you did. You kept going. You were the hardest working man in show business. You always ran and you always worked it out. And if you needed money now you kept running and the next show would get you some cash to get to the next town and so on. And suddenly running didn't work. So the audiences were smaller and the bills were bigger than ever and the IRS was breathing down your back and uh yeah, it 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 just it messed with his head.
0: There's this point he he had signed a huge record contract with Polydor, the European record conglomerate. Yeah. And there's this point where he's not making hits the way he used to. This is like 1976 or 77 or something like that. And he asks Polydor for some money, and they say no, I mean he, he was in the habit of just asking the record company, Hey, send me twenty five thousand dollars yeah, in fact, I think it was twenty thousand dollars for
1: christmas <laughs> yeah he wanted he had to, he had to buy some Christmas gifts or something that was what he was saying, and yeah he he would always hold not always, but one strategy very successful and necessary was that he would hold the next record. Well, from Sid Nathan, Nathan until King paid him money up front to, to release a record. Well, he tried that with, 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 with Polydor, and they said no. And not only no, but you are contracted to give us a next record. And you're, the people that you owe money are all hitting us with your bills. So we really need that record before Christmas. And um, suddenly he was not running things the way he expected when he tried to
0: get out from uh having run off of the cliff, he did it by transforming himself into this sort of country guy um not country music, but um you know he had been he had foregrounded his cosmopolitanness and his internationalness, but when it got really tough, what he did was drive a pickup truck and or a conversion van around his property in
1: georgia yeah that was uh to have a home base to be a good old boy suddenly not in a, a self-conscious or constructed way or only halfway constructed maybe there was a side of him that definitely was that way i mean that's that was where he came from and as i say that was why he could talk to strom Thurmond, who felt that way uh to some degree too
0: he had a career resurgence, um, as did a number of R&B musicians, around the release of The Blues Brothers. Yeah. And, yes. I, you know, I was born in 1981. I don't remember when The Blues Brothers came out. I remember it as something that, that I loved as an 11 or 12-year-old. Um, it was a weird thing because it was the first glimmerings of baby boomer nostalgia at the same time as it was the first sort of hipster looking back on black music of white people um, coming into the mainstream.
1: Yeah, I think that he thought, thank God, these smart Hollywood or Saturday Night Live guys got it. (laughs) They got it right. I should be in movies. (laughs) I, I should be singing in movies. And he kept running and he kept going and... He could be playing shows uh, at the Lone Star Cafe in New York, uh, you know, for 100 people. Or he could be playing shows in in Italy for tens of thousands of people at a festival the same year, the same month. And uh, it was another show. It was – he never dialed it down. He needed that (laughs) – five that he got from the audience.
0: He made that horrible record with Africa Bambata. Oh,
1: <laughs> peace. Yeah.
0: Unity, love, and having fun <laughs> is the chorus of the song.
1: <laughs> and I'm sure he didn't know who Bambata was at all. Um <laughs> and there's no reason that he should have at that at that point maybe, but um but he knew he was important and that, that he was a spokesperson for something and a and a and a, and, a, and a guy making uh very important records and it he probably signified a little bit like Acroy and Belushi. Here's an important guy who gets me and is smart enough to want me to be in on what they're doing. So, so, but there, you you read these stories from the time where they'd have press conferences with with Brown and and Bambata, and, Bambada, and um, it's it's painful because you <laughs> see, you know Brown is competing with Africa Bambata, and you know he's trying to. Take him to school in front of an audience and educate him and put him in his place, maybe or something and Ben bot is is not about that at all he's hes he loves james brown he's he wants to make a he made a record and that's cool and it, it just felt really awkward so
0: I'm not going to ask you to compare james Brown to uh, like Stephen Foster or people from before the dawn of recorded music <laughs> um, but has there been any other popular music performer in the United States that has had the impact that James Brown had over his career
1: you know i i don 't think we can talk about Elvis. maybe we can talk about in a way we can talk about Sinatra, I think because the way that I see it you know Sinatra the way they come together for me is that he retooled himself so successfully from the forties into the seventies he found. Ways to make records that sounded good in that time and that as his voice and his skill set changed, he made records that were perfect for what was happening with him and the industry. And they don't sound like the records he made 10 years before in any period. Brown very much is like that. And the only other guy I can think of in a way is is Bob Dylan um, with very different results. I mean, we love... And uh, praise Bob Dylan for being chameleonic, for changing with the times, and you know, always oh, born again. Now, oh, now he's a fundamentalist, and oh, now he's uh, he's you know, he's political, and now he's a conservative, and and that somehow speaks to his protean nature. Well, James Brown was equally uh, contradictory and conflicting, and uh, not in a straight line. But I don't think it always worked for Brown uh, culturally uh, the way that it worked for Dylan. Um, other than that, you know, George Because Clinton. of race. Exactly. I think that's it. Because of race. Because uh, because
0: what white people want from black people is authenticity.
1: That's it. Thank yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's not uh, ambiguity. <laughs>
0: well, R.J., I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. It was really fun to read the book and to talk to
1: you. Oh, it's great to be here.
0: Thank you for having me. R.J. Smith is the author of The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. It's available now in paperback. Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. Moving across the country is rarely smooth sailing, but so far, comedian Cameron Esposito has been taking it all in stride. Esposito was featured on our show a couple of years ago when we were in Chicago. Lately, she and her signature haircut, the Side Mullet, have been popping up all over the country, from TBS's Just for Laughs festival to South by Southwest and the Aspen Rooftop Comedy Festival. In June, she moved from the Midwest to Los Angeles and she wasted no time getting to work. On her first day in California, literally her first day, she trekked up to the top of the San Bernardino Mountains to join me and 200 of the luckiest people on Earth at the 4th Annual Max FunCon.
3: I'm happy to be here in California. It, it really did affect me when uh, all the Prop 8 proceedings were happening here. My biggest issue... Oh, should I... I'm like a giant lesbian. <laughs> did I? There's like one or two people that are like, really? And everyone else is like, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Look at those boots. <laughs> Prop 8. So that was a crazy moment. Um, as a woman who dates women, that was a crazy moment because one of the arguments of the people who wanted propate to stay on the books, one of their uh, arguments was that they didn't want little kids in schools to have to learn about the existence of same-sex couples. That was the wording, that's not my wording, that was their the existence. So it wasn't a morality judgment, it was, like here's the thing, I grew up in the suburbs and I wish to God, all right, how many days a week should a suburban girl wear a coonskin cap? I went with seven, seven days a week. I just wish somebody had been like, listen, David Crockett, there's a reason for all this. (laughs) I wish that somebody had That implies that there are no little gay kids. Like, that's what that implies. For kids to not learn about the existence of... Because... All right, so I... So I've always, like, this is how, I've always been built like that. I love my body, but it's athletic. Like, I came out just, like, tiny jackets over tiny jackets, like a Russian doll of tiny jean jackets, just skinny pants on. I'm ready for rugby. Throw a girl off my shoulder. I'll run the ball in. I've always been built like this. I've always been this person. I also, like, there's this this picture of me from a Halloween. I'm probably eight. All my friends are there. My birthday's around Halloween, so it's like a birthday party. and My friends are dressed as, like, a gem or a cat or a nurse, like a jemmy cat nurse. I am a bloody pirate. And I have grease painted on a beard and I am sawing a pinata of a swing set. And all these cat nurses are like, what is going on? Except for the one who's like, no, I'm into it. Because <laughs> it's one in ten. Statistically, she was there. I also had to wear an eye patch for eight years of my childhood because when I was a kid, I had crossed eyes. Yeah. Yeah. When I say that right after the pirate story, there's going to be some people who are like, oh, like a black, like a pirate patch, like a jaunty, like a thing around the head, like a conquistador, like a sailor of the seas. That's not that kind of eye patch I'm talking about. This seems like an intentional eye patch. I'm talking about a, it was a Band-Aid material, disposable, flesh-colored eye patch. So when you put it on your face, it just looked like more skin. (laughs) Like a sloth from the goonies type of a situation. <laughs> to soften the blow, the people, the company that made these eye patches, they put in the box, they put these stickers. Because I think that they thought kids were going to be like, oh, what do you have on your binder? Oh, what do you have on your trapper key? Oh, like a Lisa Frank? Was that like a Lisa Frank rainbow? Well, check this eye patch sticker out. <laughs> I think that's what they imagined, but never caught on. I think partially because it's really it's genuinely tough to rock an eye patch. And I think also because they didn't even make the right kind of stickers. Like they made these circular, bucolic farm scenes. It would be like it would be like a deer drinking from a brook and then an owl next to the deer. They were printed in only navy blue, tan, and brown. So you were supposed to with your glasses, braces, bowl-cut coonskin cap. <laughs> throw a little deer on your patch and go and succeed at fourth grade. (laughs) (laughs) I just wish that somebody had said to me, listen, kid, your eyes are totally going to straighten out. But you are not. (laughs)
0: Cameron Esposito performing in the woods at the fourth annual Max FunCon. You can find her at the The fifth annual Max FunCon takes place May 31st through June 2nd, 2013. Registration is now open at MaxfunCon.com. At the end of every show, we feature a culture pick from yours truly. It's The Outshot. It seems kind of ridiculous to recommend Cheers. I mean, everyone's seen Cheers, right? It's one of the most beloved TV shows ever. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to say it. You should watch Cheers. Here's the thing. Cheers is mostly just a perfectly standard sitcom. An ersatz family, in this case a bunch of folks who hang out at a bar, relate to each other. Something goes wrong to upset the order of things. Something is done to set them right. Repeat. That's been the structure of sitcoms since I Love Lucy and the Honeymooners. The trick of the form, though, isn't the formula. It's the execution. You have to want to spend time with these people, quirks and all. The jokes have to be funny, and they have to fit perfectly into the characters' mouths. Most of all, you have to, as as the viewer, care about this family. You have to want to be part of it. After work, when you're tired, and your boss yelled at you, and your spouse is annoyed at your smelly socks... Your sitcom family has to be your refuge.
1: Making your way in the world today Takes everything you've got And that's
0: actually what Cheers is about. Cheers is about having a a home, having a family, having a place to go, no matter how tough your circumstances are. A disgraced baseball pitcher, a simple-minded kid from the boondocks, an insufferable male man who lives with his mom, a tired woman running from grinding poverty, a failed scholar, a psychiatrist who can't quite live with himself, all of these people go to cheers not to drink or to work, but to be home. And no matter what mistakes they make or have made, they're welcomed. And the great part is, on cheers, so are we. You want to
3: go where
2: everybody knows your name.
0: That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You should like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Thorne. All of those words in one long string to get special updates. You can also find us on Twitter, at Bullseye, and you can find me on Twitter, at Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and Public Radio International stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation.
2: PRI, Public Radio International.